Marco Polo is a household name today. For many people in this room, Marco Polo is a household name uh, because of the children's pool party game. Let's Play Marco Polo is met with the squeals of many children and the groans of many adults who are trying to enjoy some peace and quiet by the pool. Still others know that Marco Polo deserves to be uh, well known for more than just a children's pool game. Perhaps you know that he was a 13th century Italian explorer who traveled along the Silk Road and explored much of Asia. But I wonder if anyone in here knows Marco Polo for perhaps his greatest accomplishment. On his first trip to Sumatra, Marco Polo discovered a herd of unicorns. True story. He writes about it in his journal. I'll read you his description of these unicorns. Be forewarned, he was very disappointed. Unicorns, you see, were nothing like what he had read about or seen depicted in the art of his day. This is from his journal, from Sumatra. There are wild elephants in the country and numerous unicorns, which are very nearly as big. They have hair like that of a buffalo and their feet like those of an elephant. And in the middle of their forehead, they have a very large black horn. Their head is like that of a wild boar and is always carried bent to the ground. They delight in living in mire and in mud. It is a hideous beast to look at and in no way like what we think and say in our countries. Indeed, I assure you that it is quite the opposite of what we say it is. Now, having read that description, you may know that Marco Polo didn't see unicorns at all. What did he see? Rhinoceros. He saw a rhinoceros. So why did he call it a unicorn if he was really seeing a rhinoceros? Marco Polo had never heard of a rhino. And so his mental universe, his mental framework didn't have rhino in it. And so when he sees a one-horned animal, and his mental framework does have a word for that, it's a unicorn, he describes what he sees as a unicorn. We would see the same had we been in his shoes and had we had no idea that a creature called a rhinoceros existed. What's the point of this story other than fascinating trivia that you can tell at dinner parties henceforth? Well, it's that we must be careful of doing the same thing whenever we read history or whenever we read the scriptures, of taking things that exist in our mental framework and seeing references for them and then trying to map what our mental framework is on words and concepts and phrases and things that we see when we read history or when we read the Bible. Because if we do that, if we don't proceed with caution... We can take our mental universe and map it onto what we read in the text, then perhaps we, we won't see at all what it actually was that was meant and what was intended in the mind of the author. 
Moreover, we'll, we'll, we'll misread the text, but then also we'll, we'll not only misread the text, but we'll miss out on riches of instruction and riches of application that the text may have for us because we have an entirely different thing in mind than what the author had in mind. Well, our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, and it deals with slaves and masters. And as we go through this text together, we need to proceed with caution lest we take slavery from our mental framework and map that onto what Paul was addressing in first century Ephesus. One, so that we don't write off this text as entirely irrelevant to us, right? When you read this text, you say, I'm not a slave, I'm not a master. How would this even apply to me? What is the relevance of this text? but also so that we don't misread the Bible and what the Bible would have to say about the topic of slavery and how we should understand what Scripture teaches. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, you can turn there in your copy of God's Word. Here's what I hope we see by the end of this sermon together in this text is this. Mindfulness of your true master will transform your treatment of others. Mindfulness of your true master will transform your treatment of others. And as we go through the text together, I want to kind of see that in in two main headings. So one, mindfulness of your master will transform how you serve others. And then secondly, mindfulness of your true master will transform how you see others. We're just taking there the, the command to bond servants and the command to masters with those two points. Mindfulness of your true master will transform how you serve others, and mindfulness of your true master will transform how you see others. Ephesians 6, follow along as I read, starting in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of God. Number one, mindfulness of your true master will transform how you serve others. Just by way of reminder, as we're jumping into this text here, if you've been with us through our series in Ephesians, you may remember from some of the earlier messages that this is what is called a household code. We have a household code here in Ephesians, there's another one in Colossians, there's one in 1 Peter. I'll reference both of those parallel texts this morning uh, with reference to this text. But a household code was a a way in ancient literature of of addressing relationships that existed within houses. And so we've seen already husbands and wives, commands to them. We've seen um, commands to uh, parents and to children. And now we're seeing commands to bondservants and to masters as that would have been a part of, of the household in this cultural context. And so our passage begins, if you look at verse 5 again with me, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. 
And here's where, in the sermon, I want to press pause for just a minute. I'm going to press pause because we're going to walk through that first point that I gave you of mindfulness of your true master, transform how you serve others, and spend most of the time in this first point before we turn to the command to masters. But I want to press pause here because we need to unpack a couple of things. Now, I don't, I don't see this as a pause being entirely outside the scope of the sermon and what we're trying to do here in the text. No, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a pressing pause so that we can unpack a couple of things that we have an opportunity to, to do here, which will actually enable us to understand exactly what it is that we're reading in Scripture and understand, as I said at the beginning, how to see rhinos and not unicorns. So toward that end, I want to give two notes in this parenthesis. One is a historical clarification, and two is a biblical clarification. So a historical clarification and a biblical clarification. As a part of the historical clarification, as those, uh, of, uh, as those living in the United States of America, the word slavery conjures up very specific images in our minds, given the reprehensible relationship that our country has had with the issue of slavery. The image that comes to our mind is uh, from mass chattel slavery, chattel being a word for uh, property, uh, mass enslavement of people who were taken as property. Images that come to our mind are from the transatlantic slave trade where people, primarily Africans, were kidnapped and ripped from their homes and separated from their families and brought here to North America to work and toil in very harsh conditions. And so we think of the horrors and the degradation and the dehumanization that comes along with the word slavery when we hear it. And we rightly think of those things. If that's not a category for you, if if you feel like, I've I've never, you know, maybe seen movies that depict that or read books that depict that, I would encourage you to familiarize with the horrors and the degradation and the dehumanization that exists in the history of our United States. However, if we map that onto what was happening here in Ephesians chapter 6, I think we'll have a skewed vision of what we're reading in Ephesians 6. There were certainly similarities, right? So there's similarities to what was going on in first century Greco-Roman culture. There were similarities to be between that and, you know, the, the 16th, 17th, 18th century, or 17th, 18th, 19th century America. There, there are certainly similarities between those two things. So I... I'd, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture of first century Roman slavery. There was mistreatment. In fact, our text itself gives rise to that, as you may have noticed as we're reading it, that Paul says to uh, the masters to stop your threatening, which, which just shows that there were masters who were threatening their slaves, so that existed. That was the thing. Uh, There was unfair and unjust treatment. Again, in our passage itself, we see Paul reminding masters that God is not given to partiality. Masters, don't forget, God is not given to partiality, meaning neither should you. And certainly some masters were given to partiality and prejudice and racism. And so there's a reminder to that. So so there are similarities that, that would exist between the slavery that comes to our minds and the slavery that was going on in first century Roman culture. However, there are also some very, very important differences as well between mass chattel slavery in the U.S. and slavery in Paul's day. Here are a few, very quickly, that I think are important for us to to, to keep in mind. One, 
the, the slavery in this day, in Paul's day, was a non-racial issue. So whereas the slavery that we call into our mind was primarily a racial thing, it was non-racial in this day. So there were slaves of all races. It wasn't confined to any one people group or ethnicity. A second difference. Most slaves could expect freedom by the time they were 30 years old. It wasn't a lifetime deal for most slaves. In most cases, purchasing your freedom was a very real possibility, and it was common for freed slaves to then rise uh, to, to new heights in society. Uh, in fact, a, a biblical example that I think is, is really interesting is that uh, Felix, uh, the governor of Judea, who's, who's famous uh, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 24, Felix is the governor of Judea who throws Paul into prison. Felix was a former slave. He worked, he earned his freedom, paid off his debts, was freed, and then rose through the ranks and became governor of Judea. Uh, the Roman poet Horace uh, was the son of a slave who worked, uh, earned his freedom, uh, bought a farm, and uh, supplied a very, um, obviously, uh, rich education for his son, who is well known today. And so it, was, it wasn't a lifetime deal. It was non-racial. It wasn't a lifetime thing. Most slaves expected to be free by the time they were 30 years old. Number three, difference between these, the slavery in our mind and maybe what was going on here in Ephesus is that slavery wasn't limited to hard labor. Slaves worked a variety of jobs. And quite often advancement was possible even within those ranks. Many slaves in the Roman era even owned property. Uh, a history professor at Stanford, Walter Scheidel, writes this. I thought this was helpful. He, he just kind of out, it's a, a study that was done on uh, slavery during this time period, Roman slavery in the first century. Listen to what he writes. He says, slaves were engaged in an enormous variety of activities as estate managers, field hands, shepherds, hunters, domestic servants, craftsmen, construction workers, retailers, miners, clerks, teachers, doctors, midwives, wet nurses, textile workers, potters, and entertainers. In addition to private sector employment, they worked in public administration and served in military support functions. Their responsibilities ranged from the most basic tasks of footmen and water carriers to the complex duties of stewards and business managers. So you can see in the Roman society, they just had slaves at all different kind of classes and all kinds of different work from kind of blue collar to white collar. They just, uh, uh, they were employed in a variety of jobs. Again, it's, it's a little different than the slavery that tends to come to our minds. Fourth, slaves had the potential to be better off than free laborers in this day, which is actually what led many free laborers to sell themselves into slavery, to kind of indenture themselves to somebody where they could have consistency of work and consistency of wages to be better off financially. And then finally, one final point about this period is that one-third, it's estimated that one-third or more of the population consisted of slaves. And so if Paul, and just kind of think about that as Paul is writing this letter to Ephesus that we've been reading, if there were, let's say, 45 people in this church in Ephesus, 15 or 20 of them may have been slaves, may have been bondservants. Okay, now this isn't to say, again, I'm not trying to argue too much. I, this isn't to say that slavery was always good or that slavery was always desired. I think that would be to argue too much. Indeed, we just read the book of Philemon, 
where Paul writes a letter to Philemon asking him to, to free Onesimus. Paul also in 1 Corinthians 7 encouraged slaves, if they uh, were able to, to avail themselves of the opportunity to seek their freedom. So certainly it's seen that it, 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 was, it was better to, to not be a bondservant than to, to be in that relationship in certain situations. And so we see here in the text uh, that, that we're looking at here that, that slavery is mentioned, bond servants is mentioned, but the, there's, there's maybe some, some differences to what comes to our minds. So the slaves in this day, again, Paul is writing to this church, a very sizable chunk of this church may have been bond servants from a variety of different ethnic backgrounds, involved in all sorts of different kinds of jobs, who had very real visions and plans for what they were going to do once they were outside the confines of being bondservants, and they would engage in other pursuits. Which leads us to our, our second clarification that I want to start with. So that's the historical consideration. Number two is a biblical consideration. Because very often the charge will be leveled at Christians, that the Bible supports slavery. How can you believe that when the Bible supports slavery? Well, no, the Bible would never support what we saw in the atrocities of the 17 and 1800s in America and what we still see around the world today. The, the Bible is not pro-injustice. The Bible is not in favor of inhumane treatment of people. No, God is perfectly just. Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Romans chapter 2, Paul says that God shows no partiality. Right? He, he doesn't play favorites based on race or gender or class. James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. To, to show partiality and to, to be prejudiced is a grave sin. And the Bible would never support that or, or support people who were in favor of that. The Bible teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves, which would include kind treatment of others, fair treatment of others, equitable, just treatment of other people. When God gave his people his law, it was filled with reminders. As we, we, we saw earlier that we read that they were once slaves and God freed them. He is one who frees slaves. And so their law was constantly reminding them that they were once slaves. It was part of their identity that they had been freed by the Lord. And that was then to shape how they treated those who were vulnerable. It was to shape how they treated the sojourner. It was, it was to shape how they would, would treat the immigrant. It was to shape how they treated the, the widow and the orphan. It was to shape how they, they, they treated slaves. And the law, for instance, in uh, Exodus chapter 21, to, to, to steal somebody, to kidnap somebody, was a capital offense. Exodus 21, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 10, you can read there where enslavers, which, which is this idea of taking somebody and, 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 and enslaving them, stealing them, kidnapping them. 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, is, is, uh, enslavers are condemned, along with a list of other people. But you may say, didn't those who perpetrated the horrors that we've seen in the history of our country, didn't they use the Bible to support that? 
Then they take scripture and say, hey, look, this is what scripture said. Well, many indeed did try to use the Bible to support that. What, what do we say about that then? Well, we say they were wrong. They were wrong. Their own, their own selfishness and their own blindness and their cultural moment and because of their own selfishness and their, their worldliness it caused them to, to, to read Scripture in a way that it was never meant to be read. And, and so, yeah, Scripture can say all kinds of stuff if you tilt your head enough and squint and twist it. And that's exactly what was going on. And so when we read of, 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 of Scripture being used in that way, we should rightly call that out and condemn it and say, no, that, 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 that hermeneutic, that approach to Scripture, that interpretation is just flatly wrong. You can't be a serious student of Scripture and to read some of the things that were read and uh, taught by the people perpetrating those horrors. Spurgeon is always good for a good quote. Spurgeon said to American pastors, so Spurgeon uh, pastoring in London, had a, uh, he, he had heard what American pastors who were involved in slavery, what they had to say about slavery. And one of the things that American pastors would say is they would, they would call slavery a peculiar institution. Spurgeon. It is indeed a peculiar institution, just as the devil is a peculiar angel and hell is a peculiarly hot place. That's right. The Bible doesn't support slavery, and actually what I hope we'll see, we're about to jump into the, the text itself and to keep walking through that, but what I hope we see is not only does the Bible not support slavery, uh, but actually what we will see here, I think, are seeds sown that any abolitionist movement that has existed with Christians out in front of it have used exactly what we're going to see in the text to try to eradicate slavery. I think we'll see that. All right, unpause. <laughs> that, was a, that was a long pause, and, but I think that's helpful when we encounter something like this in the text, in our cultural context, to say, wait a minute, what, what exactly are we talking about? How do we answer some of the things that we'll often hear claimed? And so we're back into mindfulness of your true master will transform how you treat other people. And the first thing that we see in this command to bond servants is that mindfulness of your true master transform how you see others. All right, so look at the text again. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or whether he is free. So given all the context that we just discussed, what Paul does is he gives instructions for those who find themselves in a slave-master relationship. Paul's goal here in this text isn't to condemn first century Roman slavery. And Paul's goal in this text isn't to condone first century Roman slavery. That, that's just simply not his, the way he's operating here. His goal and his purpose here isn't to condemn it or to condone it, but to address Christians who found themselves within it and say, this is what your character should look like while you're in this. This is how you should act. This is how you should carry yourself if you find yourself in this institution of a bondservant master relationship. What should their conduct be? What should their attitude be? How should they look at it? How should they consider it? That's what Paul is trying to do here. 
His one command, verse 5, obey your earthly masters. Earthly is important there because he's about to say you have a, you have a greater and higher master. And so he points out obey your earthly masters. And then he gives a number of descriptors. As you, you may have noticed in the text, a number of descriptors of, of things that should mark this obedience to their earthly masters. Now, if you kind of step back from it, the overarching, if you say, okay, there's, a, there's an overarching character, there's an overarching kind of umbrella of, of what uh, was meant here. And the overarching thing that should mark their obedience to their earthly masters is that they should obey their earthly masters as though they are obeying their heavenly master. I don't know if you know it, but Jesus shows up in every single one of these verses. So verses 5 through 9, scan down there with me. So in verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, you will receive back from the Lord. Verse 9, to masters. He is uh, talking about Jesus. He is both their master, or Lord. He is both their master and yours in heaven. So Jesus shows up in every single one of these verses. What Paul is saying to them is that your obedience is to be a Christ-motivated obedience. Your obedience should be not, not just to them, but to a heavenly master. We are first and foremost slaves of the Lord Jesus, and so you should look at your obedience as obeying him and directed to him. Tony Morita, uh, in his commentary on this, has a great line. He says this, he says, Paul urged servants to transfer masters even if they couldn't transfer jobs. I wonder if that's an encouragement to anyone in here. Paul encouraged these servants to transfer masters even if they couldn't transfer jobs. And mentally, in the way that they looked at it and the way they thought about it is that I am serving the Lord Jesus and all that I'm doing. Well, Christ is to motivate and to drive us. He is our master. And Paul lays out, I think, at least four aspects of such Christ-motivated obedience. Four aspects of Christ-motivated obedience. Look in the text with me. The first one is this. Obey with a Christ-motivated reverence. Obey with a Christ-motivated reverence. I have in mind here, particularly when he says, bondservants, obey your masters, or your earthly masters, with fear and trembling. The idea of fear and trembling in scripture has the idea of, of reverence or of respect. It means that you're taking a matter seriously and you're considering a, a matter or a situation with a sobriety and, and, a, and a, a carefulness and an attention to it. You're approaching it with fear and trembling. And so 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, Paul says that, he's talking to the Corinthians and he says, you know that I was with you in much fear and trembling. Like when he was there with the Corinthians, it wasn't a joke to him. He wasn't there goofing off. He was, it was a serious matter. He had a sobriety to it. He was giving careful attention to the way that he uh, uh, carried himself and the way that he acted in Corinth. And uh, the, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says uh, to the church of Philippi, he says, work out your salvation with what? With fear and trembling. So the idea is here that we're all kind of all cowered over in a corner, kind of shaking and kind of fear and trembling. It's, it's, not, it's not that literal kind of uh, curled up in the fetal position. It's not that. It's not that you're literally afraid or terrified, but that you're approaching an issue at hand with reverence and respect and for the serious nature of it. And so when he speaks to bond servants, he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters like that with fear and trembling. This is an important thing. This is a serious matter. God cares how you carry yourself 
within this institution of slavery that you find yourselves in. It's an important thing to him. And so it should be to you. Church, I think this is a good reminder for us as well because Jesus cares about how you carry yourself in every situation that you're in. Jesus cares about how you interact with others in every single relationship that you're in. It's important to him. It's important to us. Because as Christians, we represent him. So these bondservants who were believers were exemplifying Christian character uh, in, in the context of, of being a bondservant to the masters. That was a big deal. That was an important thing. And so as we find ourselves in any relationship, in any work situation or church situation or family situation, whatever it may be, or roommate situation, even in less than ideal situations, even in family situations that try your patience and push your buttons, even in work situations that are hard, even in relationships that are painful and fraught with discomfort and tension, we are to have a holy reverence, a godly sobriety, a seriousness, a desire to represent Christ well in those situations which I think should, should certainly make us thoughtful, should certainly make us cognizant of how we're carrying ourselves and how we're acting and how we're responding. It should certainly bring up some, some self-awareness and some self-evaluation in us of how we're interacting with others. I think it should even call us to, to, to invite not, not just a self-evaluation, but an outside evaluation of, hey, how am, I, how am I acting in these situations? How am, I, how am I treating my coworkers? How am I responding to my boss? How, do I, uh, how, how am I carrying myself in class and responding to professors that are antagonistic to me? Or we should take that seriously. We should approach it with fear and trembling. Second thing that I think should mark this obedience, number two, is to obey Christ, not just with a Christ-motivated uh, uh, Christ uh, reverence or uh, seriousness to it, but a Christ-motivated sincerity. Number two, a Christ-motivated sincerity. Look at verse 5. He talks about them obeying with a sincere heart. Verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. This means that they were to obey without hypocrisy. They, they weren't to be two-faced in their obedience, but rather they were to be genuine. This sincere heart would guard them from being people-pleasers or mere, giving mere eye service, as he says in those verses. I'm sure it would have been t- a temptation for bondservants to, to work hard for a good master and to not work hard for a bad master. It would have been a temptation for these bondservants to appear more busy and enthusiastic when the master was around and not when the master was absent. Maybe to work simply to draw attention to themselves when they're being watched, but then to be disengaged and apathetic when nobody was around. I had two jobs growing up when I was uh, junior high and high school. One was working construction with my dad. My dad ran a construction company. Uh, the second one was a lifeguard at a, a lake at a state park. Two very different jobs. On the construction site, when my dad was around, man, I was all in. I, I'm carrying stuff. I'm nailing stuff. I'm just doing, I'm, I'm, I'm all about, I'm shoveling gravel into foundations. I'm just hard worker trying to earn that dollar, trying to get my dad to give me a little bit more dollars. When my dad left the job site, I'm pulling back the top of the nail gun and just playing target practice. Like, 
just seeing if I can get one stuck in the drywall. Me and my buddy who would often work, we would take hammers and we'd have an old piece of drywall and see if we could do like axe throwing and get the hammers to stick into the drywall. When I was a lifeguard, it's a little bit of a different situation. Can't slack off on the job, right? You, you, you know, you're watching kids swimming in this lake or whatever. But when the park ranger wasn't around, I'm just kind of sitting back on a bench. Yeah, I can kind of see all the kids. They're fine. When I see the park ranger's truck pull up, man, I'm up there like, yep, all the kids are accounted for. I, I, I changed my demeanor. I changed my behavior based on who was around. You ever do that in your work? I wasn't obeying with a sincere heart as I would Christ. My dad wasn't around, and not only was I not doing my job, I was wasting valuable resources trying to shoot nails into a wall. I wasn't obeying as I, and, and serving as I would Christ whenever the park ranger wasn't around, and I was trying to impress him more than, and be a people pleaser more than doing a good job. You ever do that in your work? Diligent when being supervised or when it will go noticed? Apathetic when not? Working hard for a project manager that you like, slacking off with an overseer who isn't your favorite? How about around your own home? Have you ever, I want you to be honest, have you ever prolonged a chore so that somebody would catch you doing it? Yes, yeah, sinners. Yeah, you have. I have too. So I, I'm doing a I could have been done with this chore five minutes ago, but man, Kim's upstairs putting a, you know, putting Shepard to bed and I, she's going to find me still doing it when she comes back down. Or, or you know, you, you can prolong something so a roommate might catch you doing it when you could have been done five minutes earlier. It's people pleasing. It's eye service. That was hypothetical, by the way. I, yeah. No, Christ-motivated service, it's diligent. It's not trying to please people. It's not working for people, but working for the Lord. And church, we're called to such a genuineness in the areas in which we serve and in the areas in which we work. Colossians chapter, chapter 3, I mentioned that Colossians is kind of parallel passage to this. You have another household code, husbands, wives, slaves, masters, parents, children. Have the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to what... Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says something very similar, but he says this. He says, whatever you do, and this is in the passage to slaves and masters. I think we know this verse and forget the context of it. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We have an audience of one. And again, it's, it's, it's not just in work. I, I think a temptation when, when you often hear this passage taught on is, is uh, bond servants and masters, slaves and masters. Ah, I don't really know what to do with that. So we'll just, we'll just say it's just all about work. Well, it's not. I think there's more application than we can draw than just our work. I think our, our service in the church, our service in the home, our service in our neighborhoods. We, we want to strive to, to please Jesus. And yes, certainly at work as well. I think it certainly applies here. It has to. We want to be a model employee. We want to be model students for the sake of Christ. What would it be like if your boss thought, you know what, all of my best employees happen to be Christians? What if the professor over at Georgetown said, oh, you know, all the, the, the students that I enjoy the most are the Christians. I don't agree with them, but I really like them. They're earnest. They're serious, they're kind, they're encouraging to others. 
Friends, I think this is what we're meant to, to, to see here, that when we understand who our true master is, it transforms all of our relationships. It, it transforms how we treat others. It, it transforms how we serve others. Number three, obey with a Christ-motivated attitude. Obey with a Christ-motivated attitude. So obey with a Christ-motivated reverence, obey with a Christ-motivated sincerity, and obey with a Christ-motivated attitude. Look at verse 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. With a good will. If anybody has a CSB Bible, the, the, the CSB translators rendered this to uh, render service with a good attitude. The Net Bible and, and, uh, says to render service with enthusiasm. It's, it's, not, it's a service. We're, we're serving others as Jesus, with Jesus as our true master. And what that does is that, that causes us not, to not obey with complaining or a begrudging attitude or an embittered service. No, it's, it's, it's obedience that's good-willed. It's obedience that's good-attituded. It's obedience that is not begrudging. The hard thing about this, of course, is what if you have a bad master? What if you have a mean boss? What if you have somebody who's treating you harshly? What what if there's injustice being done? You know, the interesting thing in the New Testament is not only are those situations not exceptions, but the New Testament paints that as a glorious opportunity to do exactly what Jesus did. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 2. You can turn there if you want. I'll, I'll read several verses. 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, this is another household code. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in Colossians. We see it in 1 Peter. Here we have another household code, just like those, uh, these other two books. But listen to what Peter writes. This is to bond servants. Peter writes this. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect... Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, there it is, your true master. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good... And suffer for it and endure. That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter's writing, he's saying there's something glorifying to God when his people suffer for doing what is good. And so he says, maintain a high character in those moments when you're still maligned for it. Work hard and diligently, even when you don't receive support in return, but rather have to suffer in some way. Well, why? What, what's the logic here? Peter continues. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also, or because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that, he did this for a reason, so that you might follow in his steps. Why do this? What's the logic? Peter says it's Jesus. It's Jesus. This is what Jesus did. Jesus suffered to save us, but he also intended that for for us to follow in his steps and to do likewise. Even when we're suffering unjustly, 
even when it's hard, even when we're in a trying relationship or difficult circumstances. That's not an exemption clause and a way out. That's an opportunity to do exactly what, not only what Jesus did, but according to this text, what he intends for us to do. This happened so that you would do this also. Peter goes on, verse 22, 1 Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, do you see at the center of Christianity is the God-man, Christ Jesus, who came to be the servant of all, who was treated more unjustly and more cruelly than anyone could possibly be treated, because none have been as perfect as he was and, or, and suffered in the way that he did. No one was ever tortured or mistreated who embodied such glory as the glorious Son of God. But there he hung, spit on his body, red splotches from being smacked and beaten, blood flowing down from a crown of thorns and from wounds in his hands and his feet, and from a hole in his side, there he hung. And no one did that to him. He laid his life down. He says, no one takes my life. I lay my life down. That's the good news of Christianity. That's the gospel of Christianity. The same thing that servants are being called to do in Ephesians chapter 6 is the result of a Savior who did that for all of us who would be unjustly treated, but who would go through that so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He endured all of that. Why does it say? Because he entrusted himself to God, the just judge. Knowing that if he doesn't receive just treatment now, he will receive it then. If he doesn't receive it from his earthly master, he will receive it from his heavenly master. And he did all of that so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, so that we might follow in his steps. So that a bondservant sitting in a church in Ephesus in the first century might hear Paul's letter being read and commit afresh to serving God and not men. With a good will. With a good attitude. Not hypocritically, not trying to please people, but trying to please an audience of one. Knowing that Jesus wants us to do that. It's what Jesus would have done, and he's calling us to it, and he empowers us to do it. And not just for first century bondservants in Ephesus, but for 21st century Alexandrian lawyers and teachers and pastors and architects, policymakers and nonprofit workers and entrepreneurs and government employees and military service members. So that we might hear Paul's letter to the Ephesians being read and commit afresh to serving God and not men. With a good attitude. With sincerity. With a genuine nature to it. Not trying to please people, but trying to please our heavenly master. Number four. Obey with a Christ-motivated hope 
or obey with a Christ-motivated anticipation, you could say. One of the things that makes it possible to serve as if serving the Lord and not serving other men, uh, not serving other women, is a confident expectation that we will all be rewarded by Jesus. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Slaves could obey their masters because God sees them and he knows. He will reward them on that last day. The parallel in Colossians says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. On that final day, when all true believers in Christ stand before their true master, his riches will be yours. Nothing good that you've done will be unpaid. No no, no, no living out of 1 Peter 2, of receiving unjust treatment but bearing up underneath of that and entrusting yourself to one who judges justly. None of that, regardless of anybody in this life saw it and appreciated it and recognized it or not, none of that went unnoticed by your heavenly master and he will reward you. Jesus sees you. Regardless of your station in life, regardless of your job, Jesus sees you. And the good that you're doing that nobody sees, he sees it and he's pleased. You stay-at-home moms and you homeschoolers, he sees you when nobody else does. And he will reward you. Those of you with a high security clearance who can't even talk about what you do, he sees you. You can't brag about it. You can't talk about it. He sees it and he will reward it on that last day. Those of you with otherwise unrecognized service, whether you're kind of tucked away somewhere or you feel like you're kind of out in the open but nobody seems to notice and nobody seems to draw any attention to it, Jesus sees you and will reward you. It's interesting, isn't it, how the gospel is meant to change all of our relationships, regardless of how mundane, regardless of how normal and, and just blah it may feel, or regardless of how exalted and elevated it may be, the gospel is meant to change all of our relationships. There's no area too grand, there's no area too mundane. The goal of this point isn't simply to look at the slave-master relationship and say, oh, this equals work. It, it, it applies there. And yet the principles we find here ought to transform all of our relationships. How we serve others in any context in which we find ourselves. At work, certainly, but also in our homes, in our schools, in our church, in our neighborhoods, with our extended family members. Jesus transforms how we serve others. We see it here applied to bond servants, but it applies to us in any place we find ourselves. Number two. (laughs) Well, my second point. Don't worry, this one's short. Mindfulness of your true master transforms, so it, it transforms how we serve others. It also transforms how we see others, how we see others. We're looking at our final verse here. Masters, verse 9, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. 
it is amazing the command that he gives to masters here. There was one command to bond servants, there's one command to masters. The one command to bond servants was obey. And then he kind of fleshes that out with all the elements that we just talked about. His one command to masters is ditto. <laughs> His command to masters is do the same thing. He doesn't spell it out. He doesn't even spell it out, but he exhorts them to act in the same way towards their bond servants. This would have been scandalous. This would have maybe elicited a gasp. But they're supposed to, for those, at least, especially from those who, who didn't know the Lord and doesn't know that this is what he expects of his children. They are to act in the same way towards their bond servants. So what does that mean? Well, masters should likewise view their relationship with fear and trembling. God cares how you treat those in your employ. With, with, so think about this, masters, with, with respect, with reverence, with sobriety, with seriousness. And masters, don't be hypocrites in your dealing with them. Dealing kindly with them at times and dealing harshly when nobody is looking. Paying fair wages when it benefits you and unfair when it doesn't benefit you. Don't be hypocritical in your treatment of those under you. They should deal with them with a good attitude and with goodwill in the same way that bond servants were exhorted. They would have been kind and respectful, Christ honoring in their disposition towards their bond servants. You see, the, the Christ motivated disposition that slaves were to have is the same Christ-motivated disposition that the masters were to have. Indeed, he tells them, he says, stop your threatening. Literally, that reads giving up the threat. It's almost like giving up that as even a tool. Giving up that as even a, a possibility or a category of something that you may use against your bondservants. Giving up the threat. Stop your threatening. And the reason is spelled out. It says knowing... You look there in your text, knowing that he is both, who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We all have one master and he is impartial. Which means he, he is not a respecter of persons. There are no classes in his view, a ruling class and a working class, an elite class and a slave class. No, in the eyes of our master in heaven, we are all children of God. We are all made in his image and are incredibly valued and infinitely loved. And so it's interesting here that even though Paul's purpose doesn't seem to be to condemn or to condone, it is this perspective that plants seeds, as I said at the beginning, for future movements that would abolish slavery. Do you see why? That if there was any gap that existed between humans, this text closes it. If there was any mountain of hierarchy of who is at the top and who is at the bottom, this text flattens it. It says, no, no, you are all the same. You're not better than them. You happen to be in this position, but you're not better than them. You all have one master. You all have a boss, and it's not you. It's Jesus. 
And so the seeds that are here sown for viewing every human being, every single human being on the face of this earth, regardless of their skin color, regardless of how much money they have, regardless of where they're from, regardless of, of what country they're coming from, regardless of, of what they do for a living, regardless of any of that, this text is saying everybody is made in the image of God and is loved by him and nobody, there, there's no partiality, there are no classes here. We are all the same. And it's that seed that is sown. That any abolitionist movement, you go study it, any abolitionist movement on the face of the planet at any point have had Christians who believe that. And who say, yes, nobody should be dehumanized in any way. Nobody should be owned as property by anybody. Why? Because of this ethic right here. This ethic that puts us all on equal footing at the foot of the cross. Well, the Bible supports slavery. Not if you read it. We're, we're all the same. We all have one master. We all have one boss. God is the master. And in Christ, we are all servants of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this. For in one spirit, in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all meant to drink of one spirit. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Well, Paul, you said right here that there is slave and free. I said there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, there's no Jew or Gentile, we are all one in Christ. Do you see, Delray Baptist Church, how this is relevant for us today? It's relevant because the very same truth that leads Paul to flatten the distinctions between slaves and masters is the very same truth that prohibits us from any of our preferential treatment, from any of our prejudices, from any of our racism, from any of our preferring other people or treating people differently than others. Jews or Greeks, it's ethnicity. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Male or female, gender, gender doesn't matter as far as how we're going to treat people made in the image of God. We are all one in Christ, Galatians 3, and we are all in one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. So word to those of you who are in positions of authority, who are, have employees under you, this text is meant to inform you on how to use it well. Lovingly, respectfully, kindly, impartially, you're not the boss. Jesus is the boss. And for all of us, this text transforms how we see other people. It transforms how we view others. We are all on equal footing at the cross. We are all children of God, made in the image of God. And in the church... All are sons and daughters of the one true king. Mindfulness of our true master is meant to transform all of our relationships. Certainly transform bond servants and slaves. And if it can transform that relationship, it can certainly do that same work wherever you and I find ourselves. Let's pray for his grace in obeying this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do... 
acknowledge you as the one true master. We acknowledge you and your son Jesus and God the Spirit as our one true God before whom all people will bow the knee. God, give us the humility. Give us the empowering by your Spirit. Give us the conviction and the clarity biblically to stand on this and to obey it. Give us the courage in the midst of difficult situations to really trust that you will repay everything when we stand before the Lord Jesus and receive the inheritance in him. May that happen today. Would you send your son soon that everything we say now and take by faith will finally be sight. We ask in his name. Amen.